0: DirecTV's top content executive is this week's co host, and Fox's Joe Davis is the big get. But with Marshandoff, I'm most excited to give some more publicity to Masson's Kevin Brown again.
1: Mateo's going, and a pitch is fair. Fair ball inside the bag. Here we go. Here he comes. Mateo
2: on third. He is going to score. This game is tied. Adam
0: Frazier comes through. Come on now, Frazier. You thought for a second if Mateo could get in motion and somehow Frazier get a ball down the line or in the gap, there was a chance. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of the Marchand and Oran Sports Media Podcast. I am John Oran, media reporter for the Sports Business Journal, and he is not Andrew the of the New York Post, who is on vacation touring the Northern United States this week. He is Rob Thune, DirecTV's chief content officer and the executive who is responsible. I got this right from the website, Rob, responsible for all strategy, investments, negotiations, acquisitions, and operations for DirecTV programming. He's been with a satellite company for a decade previously holding senior positions at Univision and AT&T, where he was one of the main guys to launch at and verse But I want to start with you, Rob. You got your start in the business at Fox, where you were part
2: of a legendary team back in the early 2000s. That's right. I did. First of all, just a little cleanup. This is not Smartless. I was told this was the Smartless podcast. Is this not where I'm supposed to be? No, you're perfect. <laughs> Yes, uh, Rob Thune, Chief Content Officer. I started my career at Fox with uh, some of the folks that you were teeing up with Ray Hopkins, who was my boss, with Bill Bridgen, with uh, Mike Hopkins, uh, Mike Beard, David Nathanson. We were all worked on the distribution team at Fox. So we were uh, amongst the least loved people in the industry, but we got a lot (laughs) of stuff done. I mean, those names you mentioned Ray
0: Hopkins, he hired you, president at CBS, Bridgen, a president at NBC. Beard, a president at NextStar. Hopkins runs Prime Video at Amazon. Nathanson's on the board of uh, Fanduel. Quite, quite a, uh, quite a group there.
2: We were uh, kind of a group of uh, underachievers at Fox, and so uh, we just uh, we cut our teeth in the business at a time when everything was in flux, and uh, we were tasked to driving a lot of, a lot of upside and revenue for for the company, and uh, I think we all did a lot of that. All right. This is not
0: smart list. It's the uh, Marciano Rand sports media podcast. We always start with who's up, who's down. I
2: know you're prepared for this. Who's your who's up, Rob? Who's up would be the Michigan Wolverines overtaking oh, a the, Georgia, the Georgia, a Georgia kid doing uh, Michigan. Yeah, that's impressive. It, that's through the eyes of the Vegas oddsmakers. They just surpassed the Georgia Bulldogs in terms of likelihood of winning the national championship this football season. All right, Rob, my who's
0: up. Jimmy Pitaro. Uh, of espn because we finally got a peek at espn's financials and you know what they looked a lot better than i thought they would after disney kind of hid them uh, within disney for a while i know a lot of people are focused on profits that were down sales that were down but come on 16 billion dollars in revenue almost three billion dollars in profit um, Michael Nathanson pointed out of Moffitt Nathanson, $3.3 billion in EBIT. Every single traditional media company would love to have disappointing results like that. Look, ESPN's been through way too many layoffs. It's cut on-air salaries. It's passed on a lot of rights deals. Big Ten, Pac-12, MLS, Champions League uh, It took a smaller ML- MLB package. The free spending days of ESPN are over. There are changes that are coming uh, that's not good news for small to medium sized leagues, but these revo- results show ESPN still is a driver at Disney and it's a, still a serious company. Your who's down, Rob? Who's down are
2: the MLB home teams during the league championship series. They went four and nine as of today. We have one more game left uh, tonight. In the ALCS, not one home team win. 0 oh, for 7. And the NL uh, side of the house was looking pretty good, going 4 for 4 for the first four games. Not so great in the last two, going 0-2. And tonight is a pivotal game that if the uh, home Phillies lose – then both of the uh, the underdogs came through and took the, the the series to go into the World Series. You know, you
0: started at Fox with Hopkins and Bridgen and Nathanson, all this gambling talk. I feel like I'm
2: back there in the, in the early 2000s, Rob. <laughs> These are just stats. They're not gambling in any way. These are just the facts, sir. <laughs> My who's
0: down, Alex Morello. He is the owner of the Arizona Coyotes. And earlier this month, after Bally Sports Arizona closed shop, Morello signed a deal with Script Sports for over-the-air broadcasts, gonna be available on one of the broadcasters' digital channels, channel at 15.2, I believe. And here's the problem. One of the biggest distributors in Arizona doesn't carry that channel, doesn't carry any of the broadcasters' digital channels. And as luck would have it, we have that distributor, DirecTV's top content executive, on the pod this week to explain further, uh, while the team is talking about going back to the future and getting a broadcast deal, well, to kill a cliche, this isn't your father's broadcast deal. This is a deal that possibly, I think, will hurt distribution for the team. It's going to take us into topic one. Rob, what's
2: going on in Arizona, man? It's hard to know what's going on in the RSN business altogether. In Arizona, um, Valley Sports shut stop shop, shut it down, and we had the Suns go to broadcasting Gray. And now you've got uh, the d sitting with baseball right now. So it's not clear where those rights are going to go. But as it sits right now, baseball appears to be looking to pull back the rights as they come free and then work with distributors like us to distribute the games as a sub-channel to MLB Network. And we like that model. We like the league-driven model because it keeps customers who currently are prior to the the changes who received the games to continue to receive those games. The problem with broadcasters, a bunch of problems, but first let's just start with the team territories themselves and the broadcast footprints themselves. Team territories do not align perfectly with broadcast territories. And so if any broadcaster straddles uh, two teams territories, they can't light up the station signal unless the league steps in and allows them to distribute the signal in an area or the games in an area that they didn't have before. And so there'll, there'll be a little bit of fighting um, if that were to occur with the team's footprint is being stepped upon. Baseball, hockey, basketball, they'd all have to referee with the incumbent teams where those uh, team territories are, now are. And as it sits right now, those aren't congruent. And then you think about the technology. So so it, the, the territories themselves are very vast and you'd have to have a syndication of every single broadcast station within that team territory to distribute the games where they were before. And there are white areas where where the teams straddle or uh, territories with another team or where there is no syndicated station that doesn't want to step into the fray. And so there are going to be customers who are going to be left out in the cold who used to get the games, who will not have an opportunity to get them because broadcast can't deliver it to all those teams. And then if you look at what's happening now, specifically what you called out with the coyotes, the, the station that it's going to go upon is on a sub channel and our technology, unfortunately getting a little wonky here on this, but we don't <laughs> carry all these sub channels, these, these multicast channels of, of broadcast stations. We carry the primary feeds where you see all the network programming of the particular station itself, but we don't carry the sub channels that are typically a, uh, uh, a weather channel, a traffic channel, a local news channel. And that's where Um, these stations are looking to potentially plug these games into as overflow because they have network programming already occupying the primary signals. And for us, our our mousetrap of satellite was not built to accommodate all the subchannels across across the country. We have a tough time delivering all the primary signals across the country, let alone subchannels. So we'd have to launch several new satellites in order to pull that off, and we're just not going to go there. So that's a problem. And in in Arizona, we don't have a uh, an elegant solution for delivery of the coyotes if they're going to be delivered on a sub-channel of the broadcaster. So this is a trend uh, that has been
0: happening in uh, si- since the RSNs have been having some problems. I know in, in Las Vegas, the, the Golden Knights did a similar deal. In Phoenix, the Suns uh, did a similar deal. What you're saying, does it apply to all these deals or is it just u- unique to the coyotes because that's uh, one of the digital sub-channels?
2: Well, it could be a hybrid. So what I mean by that is they're starting out with the Coyotes as a sub-channel in Phoenix proper. And what's the syndication? Because the Coyotes territory doesn't just sit within Phoenix. It's the whole state of Arizona and some portions of New Mexico. And so um, the station syndication outside of just the Phoenix DMA um, isn't covered. And so how how would the fans get to those games if they're not even available on the broadcast Stations in the outside territories of Phoenix, and then when you get into Phoenix itself, that's on a multicast channel. We don't carry; we don't have the ability to accommodate that. So they're going to be left out in the cold. In the in the example that you threw out on on the Golden Knights, that's kind of that um, problem where there are certain broadcast uh, station markets that sit comfortably within the team territory, and so there is a syndication of of those stations that have been set up to accommodate carriage. But there are those pockets where those stations don't go, where there is no distribution, and there's no plan to carry it outside of that. Broadcasters are going to have, well, they'll have more reach in those uh, particular markets where they do have you know, full carriage within the team territory. On those fringe areas, they won't, and they won't have that reach. So is it a plus minus? I mean, I think some of the teams are going to hear from fans hey i used to get these games now i don't what gives well what gives is they decide to go through the broadcast model and didn't go through the traditional cable distribution model that we have been living with for years with the rsns
0: i started very uh specific with the phoenix market but let's let's draw back a little bit and talk about that that model um you know it's well known diamond is in bankruptcy right now with with, with its rsns uh warner brothers discovery got out of the business altogether uh, as well. You now have uh, a bunch of independent RSNs and the Comcast-owned RSNs uh, that are out there. From your front row seat, how perilous is the situation with the regional sports networks?
2: Well, I think um, a lot of those independent RSNs, as we think of them, are largely team-owned. You've got Yes with the Yankees. You've got Nesson with uh, the Red Sox and the Bruins. You have a team deal directly with charter for the carriage of the Lakers and the Dodgers. Um, you have ownership with the, the abs and the nuggets. So you got a mixed bag. I think all of them are nervous that what happens, you know, when our deals are up and if the RSN business is taking a drastically different course, our pay TV providers going to want to plug those uh, RSNs into their programming lineups. TV obviously has a long history of, of being a leader in sports Programming and we don't intend to deviate from that. But there are going to be exceptions as broadcasters step into the fray and try to opportunistically take these rights where we have technical limitations. Uh, you know, we can't change physics and the physics of our satellites don't allow this unlimited bandwidth that if we were to start carrying all these different digital multicasts, we just simply can't. There are going to be some changes to the whole marketplace and we're as anxious as everybody else to see how these play out because they plug into our overall strategy of leading in sports.
0: In in addition to the technical problems that you talked about, I mean, you're going to move from a scenario where you're Paying a lot for regional sports networks because of the sports rights they have to paying retransmission consent fees to these uh, the, these local channels, local broadcast channels that pick up the sports rights. So you know, what what's worse? It's, it's sort of like jumping from the uh, frying pan to the fire
2: almost. Why we even got here with Diamond Sports and RSNs in general is because the model was broken. The rights just kept going up and up and up. And the actual viewership or the demand for these local sports, while there are some that engage very heavily, and watching the, their local teams, the lion's share of people do not watch um, RSNs, at least on on our our dial. And I think it's fairly common across all the other distributors. It's the same concern that the prices didn't match the viewership, and so we're overpaying the, for these rights, and they need to be rationalized. And so, folks like uh, Dish dropped out of the RSN business. You you have uh, new digital players that are scaling up that don't carry these. Uh, networks because they aren't efficient they're too cost intensive like youtube and hulu except for the nbc portfolio which were leveraged as part of those overall nbc deals so there was no way for hulu or youtube to avoid those that carriage um but where they were just dealing with straight conversations with dsg or they were dealing them with uh all these other independent RSNs, they just simply said no thanks and so to then say, well, here's the way we're going to do it now. We're going to move it to broadcast and let them try to impose their leverage into the negotiations to force carriage. I think we're going to see a replay of this down the road because the broadcast sig- stations are also too expensive and they've been asking for uh, crazy increases over, over the years. And we've a, we're have we hitting a point where, do, do, the, do the broadcast channels make sense? And we saw this movie already, Sinclair, broadcaster who owned DSG, wasn't able to use their leverage to put the RSNs into the dish deal, which then started to unravel the whole business model. I think we're going to see uh, more broadcast fights if they're going, if the broadcasters are going to try to assume these rights and then impose them upon us. Um, we had a pretty lengthy fight with Nextar this summer. Um, we're, we're off with two station groups, uh, White Knight and Mission. It's over a year now that we haven't carried the stations uh, of those particular companies that are, uh, owned by Nextar. Um, You have Dish, who is currently off with Hearst, Cox, White Knight, and Mission. And you even you saw Comcast jump in the fray to a, to a smaller network group. So the broadcast model isn't the silver bullet of answers, either from an economic uh, future long-term basis, or certainly uh full delivery to all the fans out there, given the limitations of what I just talked about. So I see warning signals for broadcasters jumping in here.
0: You know what uh deal fascinated me the most this past year is uh, Major League Baseball taking back the rights in San Diego for the Padres and in Phoenix for the Diamondbacks. And then they had to come to distributors like you in order to try to set, set up a new channel to to carry those. How did those
2: talks go and why did you agree to that? Well, it sort of went to what I was saying earlier that we do want to continue to carry local sports where it makes sense. And we worked a deal with them where we would continue to carry them, distribute them where um, where we originally did. There are no pockets where customers weren't going to get access to it. But there's a recognition that uh, the rights have to be modulated and and fixed to some degree. And so um, we stepped in and said, look, we'll be a distributor for you and ensure that uh, we get the games to our customers and that we will pay you for those rights. We're still waiting for the rebates from diamond to make those payments uh, for those two particular teams. But um, you know, we support local sports if we can figure out the model to be adjusted in a way where the demand um, matches uh, the economics and, and currently where we just, we have to over distribute to customers who don't even subscribe to the packages that have the RSNs. And that's part of our problem.
0: The um, NBA, its new season coming up uh, uh, this week. Uh, the NHL already did that. Have you been in talks with those leagues about potentially taking back the same type of rights using the same
2: formula that baseball's done? We've been discussions with all three leagues, and we're supportive of a league-driven uh, distribution model um, where we pay the the existing rights or something uh, consistent with what we paid for each team. Now, granted, the RSNs were one price for the various teams, if it was a two, one, two or three team RSN, or in certain cases, maybe four team RSN. So you have to figure out how the pie is split up. But for us, it's not the rate itself. It's where the minimum penetration requirements of these deals go. And we're saying they need to be adjusted downward to meet the packages where they reside, which is for us choice. On TV. and I think you've seen uh, in the marketplace. Just to interrupt you for a quick second, choice would be what a sports tier. It's a it's a, a beyond expanded basic, right? Correct. We have. I guess it'd be analogous to like a digital basic for cable, where our expanded basic we have we have a package called Select, what we've grandfathered. Our entry level package is Entertainment, which was is most analogous to expanded basic for cable. And then our next tier up is choice, and that's where the RSNs go, and um, and so Charter's in the marketplace now pushing their package, which is called Select Plus, and that's where they're putting their own RSNs, and that's where they're intending to put um, other sports properties, and I think in their in their deal with ESPN uh, and Disney, that is where ESPN Plus is going to be plugged in. So they're building that tier up, and I think. I assume they need something like ESPN Plus as a driver to get that up into the 50 to 60% range uh, to make it more viable for the teams on a local basis to to have these RSN costs be housed upon. Do you have a
0: formula where
2: it's like, we'll pay you like
0: 80% your rights or whatever the percentage is, or is it on a case-by-case basis?
2: Uh, they're all unique the conversations are all different. We don't, we look at the formula of here's what we pay and this is where we currently carry you and it needs to be cut to where we currently have distribution for choice. So there's a percentage haircut there and that's the formula that we look. So you can apply whatever mathematical gymnastics you want around sort of that, but whatever that pool of dollars is, that's haircut down to what choice penetration actually is. That's the pool of dollars we're looking to divvy up amongst the
0: teams. Robin in terms of like like you handle uh, programming negotiations with everyone, with right? all, all the different network groups you you listed, all the fights that that you've been having with uh, some of the local broadcasters. In terms of of uh, your priorities
2: and and sort of where the biggest fires are,
0: where are the local sports rights?
2: Where does that fit in? It's a certainly a big area of emphasis uh, for us, and and um, we're very anxious to see where this all goes because it's very unclear. We're sitting here today. And we're having conversations with the NBA because they're not sure what's going to happen with, uh, with diamond. And so what contingencies have to be in place? If the, if the rug gets pulled out from underneath the teams and they go back to the NBA, can we be the conduit to distribute the teams um, in the same fashion as we do today? And the answer is we're working on that. Um, What that deal ultimately looks like we'd have to then figure out and, and, and it has to go into that same kind of, Mathematical equation that that uh, we have to pay less for for the local rights and have it um, match the demand of the of the package that they currently reside in. Um, But sure, I mean, where the local rights go, it's a it's a it keeps me up at night as to what we need to do and where that and not knowing what the answer is going to be is as fluid as it is. um, It has a lot of people up at night as to what we do here and not just me, probably other people in my chair and other other district distribution shops. So if, if you're having uh, talks w- with the NBA, you've already proved
0: from San Diego and from Phoenix with baseball that you can do it. And if you can come to some sort of an uh, agreement with the league, that then it, it certainly seems like it's possible, right?
2: Yeah, certainly. We can be a stopgap, you know, whether a, a short term or a longer term, but we'd like to see a longer term model with the leagues in play, but not every one of them is going to want to go there. And so I, you know, unfortunately what used to be housed in a nice, basket of more uniform distribution of rsns is going to splinter out and you're going to have certain markets like in phoenix where you've got broadcasters delivering to the teams and a league delivering the other team and for those fans who like all three teams you're going to need a secret decoder ring to know where they all now went and imagine then being uh someone working in, in a in a call center of ours trying to explain to customers who don't know where the games have gone, you know, in this market, it's this, in this market, it's, it's X, this market, it's Y, et cetera, and permeate that across all the different markets in the country and the different teams. That's a hard thing to communicate to customers and it's not going to be clean
0: or tidy in any way. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, that Phoenix example and trying to explain to my father that it's on channel 15.2 and uh, and trying to having him try to try to get at that but uh one of the reasons I'm so I was so eager to have you on on this pod is because you have been a part of a, a lot of these well every negotiation really for the past decade go, going on on uh, direct tv so when we write about sort of the the battles like the charter disney battle like that you're in the middle of that with uh, with direct tv so when it comes to doing a deal with, say, a Disney or a Fox or an NBC, of course, it comes down to money at, at the end. But what else are you looking at? Like, like when you go into those
2: negotiations, what's sort of on your priority list? Yeah, I mean, the starting point is economics, like you point out. And unfortunately, the economics seem to be keep going up and up. And that's driven us into the problem of the declining pay TV business because the entry level price of our packages are too high for customers. And they've decided to sort of tap out of pay TV and and look to cobble together their own experiences. And um, it's unfortunate that we're at this place, but that's where we are. Um, We want to know where the content itself resides, where what we're competing with against uh, the programmer itself, who used to not be a competitor, they were just a supplier. Now they're a supplier and a competitor. So what are the rights uh, digitally and what do we get and what what are they trying to keep for themselves and how do we square that? I mean, I think what you saw in the Charter Disney deal, which was, I think, a watershed uh, deal for the industry is that, and we were out here fighting the same thing years ago. We were trying to get it such that whatever the D2C product was, the direct consumer product was, in particular programmer, that our customers who were already getting most of those channels and that content through their subscription to us would have free access to their direct consumer product. And we were out there first to try to get those, that, what we call the don't pay twice principle. And we got coupons effectively for customers who wanted to subscribe to those direct consumer products from the likes of uh, discovery plus from the likes of AMC plus paramount plus peacock where we got a 40% off coupon for our customers. Charter got a hundred percent off coupon and they're plugging in those, those C products as part of the subscription now um, into their uh, subscription for spectrum. That that was an important move. And in order to make room for that, they also culled out a lot of what I'd call longer tail channels or secondary or tertiary channels of, of the particular portfolios of these of these programmers that don't get a lot of viewership. They're really just jammed into deals to get money out of distributors. The price of pay TV has gotten too high. They're hobbies for these programming shops that don't throw off a lot of cash anyway, those those should go away and we should retrench the programming into the channels that they have that are the flagship channels. And too often I'm seeing the same bit of content ported across multiple channels of a particular portfolio. You see Monday night football that used to be exclusively in ESPN going to ABC. I You see, uh, you know, the Manning cast as it relates to that as well. So ESPN to ESPN, ABC are all getting effectively the same game. With different variations of it not to pick on espn disney they're not alone you see a lot of duplicate broadcasts across portfolios and we don't need to pay twice for that kind of stuff the shell game of programming cost needs to end and we need to get more rationalized pricing so that we keep more customers in the pay tv ecosystem and if we don't then the programmers who are going to go direct consumer and lose customers from us now have to they all if we lose one customer Every one of the major programming shops needs to pick up uh, that subscription for that customer with their D2C products. And we know that's not going to happen. It just isn't. So uh, it's kind of crazy that we've gotten to this point and it doesn't seem like logic prevailed in how program deals were done. But uh, here we are, and now we have to try to re-rationalize this. And I think the Charter Disney deal was a good first step in towards reconstituting how these deals are done in a way that are most advantageous. For customers,
0: you did kind of answer it, but I, I want to ask sort of an obvious question, which is like, how is this going to help you at Directv? Is this going to, in your opinion, going to stem cord cutting? Actually, I, I, your Directv, do you call
2: it cord cutting? What do you call it? <laughs> we do, we do. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fair. It's a, maybe it's a, a misnomer, but yeah, we think of it as cord cutting or or churn, really. I guess hey, there you go. Yeah. People yeah, Think of it as churn. We don't like that. Churn is not a good thing, and so. If we can come to the table in a renewal, like you asked, what are the important things? I don't think I fully answered your question, but there's a myriad of different things. If we can provide subscriptions to D2C products that they didn't have previously, that's value add that we can get back to customers to then say, please stay with us because we're trying to give you more value than what you had previously with us. Do you have a
0: number internally where you think the pay TV universe is going to sort of
2: level out at? Look, we've seen all kinds of different reports. I think you see ranges between forty and sixty percent as being sort of the the bottom, and it's hard to know if that's correct or not, but that's the best guesses by the the analysts who cover our industry. but prices keep going the way they're going. maybe that's underestimating the bottom because if you're if you're selling hamburgers and you were charging ten bucks you know ten years ago and now the hamburger's fifty bucks. Maybe people aren't going to eat hamburgers. <laughs> yeah. Give me a hot dog. Yeah. yeah you are. So if there are other substitutes like the hot dog that you're bringing up, the substitutes are bite sized portions of D2C products that people could subscribe to. We're, we're getting content through Amazon Prime that they get. They're largely getting an Amazon Prime subscription for free shipping, opportunistically getting content now and getting things such as Thursday night football as part of that subscription. There's a value add that's happening with Amazon. There are other ways for people to get to content that are different than the way probably you and me grew up watching. At least I know I did. I watched ESPN cycle through multiple versions of SportsCenter. I used to watch, um, you know, my local team, my Braves play, or I watched my Bulldogs play, or I watched my Hawks play, or uh, the Threaded Falcons. Um, I'd watch those teams play, and then I'd watch the ensuing sports, local sports recap of that game and and games, and then I'd watch SportsCenter to see how those things plugged in. And I don't think millennials watch sports to the same degree. They certainly don't watch TV to the same degree. Um, we didn't grow up with TikTok, but that's a phenomenon that people like to watch and it gets a lot of eyeballs. So people have the uh, time is really the measurement that's shared across all these things and they spend their time in different things than just linear TV. And if we price linear TV too expensively, you're almost forcing their hand to go watch it in different, spend their time with their eyeballs doing different things than watching pay TV. You know what's uh, what, what I find to be... Uh,
0: interesting about this is as i've been covering this it seems to me that fox and espn have really been trying to support the cable bundle so even if monday night football has sort of leaked out to abc i mean it's a broadcast channel of course you can get get it with an antenna but it's still somewhat within the bundle you look at like uh, nbc which uh puts sunday night football on peacock or cbs which uh, puts you know their nfl on paramount plus uh, I, that's a that's different than what ESPN is doing, but it doesn't sound like you view it much differently.
2: No, I do. I mean, I, I think, um, and Fox and Disney are the first ones to tout the fact that they are not the bad actors in in the D2C regard, because in, objectively, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus are not pure, you know, replicate streams of Disney, the Disney Channel and ESPN they're different pieces of content. Whereas what you get in Peacock and what you get in Paramount Plus are largely duplicative of what our experience is and all the channels that we license all the way to the broadcast channel. Uh, the one thing that they do, maybe that's even worse though, is they they take certain pieces of exclusive content uh, to put into those D2C experiences and then are further driving people away from pay TV to go subscribe to those particular experiences. There's going to be a wildcard game in Peacock that won't be available on pay TV. That's not a good thing. And so those are the kind of things that we have to rectify in, in our upcoming deals so that that kind of behavior doesn't happen because we're they're probably being funded 100% through our, the content licensing of our deals. And the
0: unique thing about Charter doing that was Charter had me believing at least that they were prepared to go as a broadband company. You know, that, okay, we, we are going to uh, shed video. You, of course, at DirecTV, you can't do that.
2: Yeah, we're a pure play video provider. So we don't have the ability to point people uh, to the broadband subscription of ours. And I, and I don't think um, Charter was you know, playing a game. I really do believe that they were at the point of indifference where they probably make just as much, if not more money for a customer who's just a broadband customer versus a broadband and video. I think broadband's been subsidizing video for years and they kind of hit the point of, it doesn't make sense anymore for video to be subsidized for broadband. We'll cut the cord and let you guys all then uh, fight for yourselves to see who's going to get to your direct consumer subscription. And so um, I I don't think it was a bluff. I think it was very real. And I think that's important uh, as a, as a check against the programmers to get more rational in their pricing to realize that you, that none of them, not one of them could exist if it was just D 2 C only, because not everybody watches ESPN. Not everybody watches Fox news. Not everybody watches a USA or Paramount channel. They, they just don't. And, but, but through our subscriptions, they pay, we pay for every single one of those customers who has in their package, those particular channels. And so uh, this buffet model that uh, they enjoy if it's a la carte model it's a it's a whole different game of trying to get these customers and then servicing them, which is another thing that they don't really have a lot of experience with um, and it's not a it's not an easy part of what we do and what we provide in the value chain.
0: We have a, a longstanding bet here on the podcast uh, that I think you're going to be able to help us with when, in your opinion, is ESPN going to take its its a uh, regular ESPN feed and go direct to consumer?
2: that's that's a very intriguing question um i know which side of the answer i'd like to see which is never (laughs) um but 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 in fairness to espn too i think they have to be very judicious about that move because if espn is fulsomely available on a direct consumer basis why do to the exact subsidization point that i made earlier why do we have to plug in espn to our packages and have our customers bear a very expensive price tag for ESPN when we can just point them to ESPN Plus and or ESPN or wherever they're going to call it ESPN flagship I guess is what I've heard out there just point them to the ESPN flagship and they can go get their subscription there and we can lower our prices um so I think that's why they haven't done it as of now they have to, they have to think through what are the pros and cons of that probably have to get a bunch of deals done to lock down those rights and distribution with with the distributors in a way that they have certainty around the carriage of ESPN, but if they go do it in advance of certain uh, renewals with, with the bigger distributors, they may find themselves without that distribution for that very reason. There's no reason for if 20% of the universe watches ESPN, I'm just making a number up. um, Why does the other 80% have to pay for it? That that's been the argument of what, you know, pay TV product is Um, you have to pay for every single channel on the dial. And if customers can opportunistically pick onesie, twosie, threesies, I don't know why we would sort of continue with that same licensing model. And by the way, that's exactly where we have to have those conversations with those that more fulsomely put their products, their linear products and broadcast products into their direct consumer products. It doesn't make sense for us to license them in the same fashion then, if that's, if that's their longer term strategy. That's why the business has been go- so good for sports. A proverbial little old lady
0: down the street is helping to pay for my Orioles addiction, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so final, final question. Um, you know, we, we, you and I were on a panel session um last week in Los Angeles, the LA sports council, where I asked you if, it felt weird for DirecTV for the first time since 1994, not having NFL Sunday ticket uh, uh, available. And you had you had a great answer on, on stage.
2: <laughs> you want me to repeat that answer? Well, I guess the answer was, well, we're a billion dollars richer for not doing that deal. And it's not to be flipped and it's not to uh, sort of uh, degrade the NFL and their Sunday ticket product. It's a fantastic product and it helped drive our business for many years. But where, and where we sit in our product lifecycle, um, it didn't make sense because we lost a billion dollars a year. And so uh, perpetuating that, that sort of loss leader products that we weren't going to do anymore. We were very data driven when we entered into those negotiations, or frankly, we didn't even enter in the negotiations. The only thing that we were looking for for Sunday ticket was continuance within our commercial uh, customer base. And that ultimately, we figured that out uh, with the deal with Everpass. That uh, the NFL has an ownership stake in Everpass. You've got YouTube TV, who's in a different uh, product life cycle. They're looking to still grow, and if that's a vehicle to help them grow, then it makes more sense for them to do it. But for us, it didn't make any sense at all anymore.
0: A group called Antenna uh, pegged the number of uh, YouTube TV subscribers for Sunday Ticket at 1.3 million. What, what should we all make of that number? Well.
2: I- I suspect it needs to be higher because I suspect that's not enough to make, um, well, you can do the math. If it's 1.3 million customers at 350 or 400 a month uh, or not a month for the entire package uh, and they're paying $2 billion, I don't think they made the cut. So we'll see, but uh, they're in the first year of having it. They're going to do everything they can to scale it. They've used other partners outside of just YouTube TV with their own sister sort of company of YouTube, the, the bigger company, frankly. Um, they have a deal with Verizon, they have a deal with Comcast. So they're getting partners to try to help offset those costs. But to me, I think they they used it as a scale driver for YouTube TV. And I think they also used it as a vehicle to drive their uh, base up to ultimately reduce their programming cost because they likely have size-based MFNs against the bigger four. That being Comcast, Charter, DirecTV, and Dish. They're trying to get to cross the dish uh, total subscriber number to then presumably trip up some size-based MFN so they enjoy better rates from the various programmers that they have deals with. I don't know. I don't have full, I don't have transparency into any of their deal making, but that would be my hypothesis as part of the reason why they did that. So I'm not sure what that has done to drive the ultimate YouTube numbers up, but they, if they can cross the DISH sub-number, then that presumably gets them into a better pricing uh, place with various programmers in their deals. All right, I lied. One final question.
0: You brought up the MFNs. Why haven't you used an uh, MFN on ESPN or Disney yet, considering what the, their deal with Charter? Is it just a factor of that comes up?
2: Uh, I can't uh, get into the the uh, confidential nature of our of our uh, deals, <laughs> but uh, but we will wait and see what comes out of that.
0: Uh, Rob, you can be a co host on the and Orient Sports Media Podcast any week. Thanks a ton, man. You got it. Thanks, John. Appreciate the time. I want to welcome in Fox's voice of the MLB, Joe Davis. The World Series uh, starts later this week. We know the Rangers will be in it. We don't know as of this taping whether they're going to be facing the Phillies or the Diamondbacks, but I do know a lot of MLB and Fox executives that are pulling for a train trip down to Philly instead of a a plane trip, a flight to Phoenix. Joe's been with uh, Fox for nine years. Uh, I I love talking to you. You're a guy that's replaced Vin Scully with the Dodgers, replaced uh, Joe Buck on uh, Fox's MLB uh joe thank you very much for joining us
1: yeah of course john
0: always good to talk to you too so last night as we're taping this you called game seven
1: uh in houston
0: where where are you right now
1: back home in los angeles so i figured you know the the series went seven games and my wife was like cool honey i know this is what you've always dreamt of also i'm (laughs) going to kill you so uh, as soon as i could get home i did i took the first flight out this morning oh
0: that's great um we had you on this pod a year ago and you were talking about, you know, it, it, the first time that you're going to do the uh, a world series um, this second time around, are there still the same kind of nerves? Or is this something that you've, you've already done before? How, how are you sort of like in terms of your preparation for this?
1: I think there are the still, still the same kind of nerves. And I really think there always will be, you know, as long as I'm lucky enough to do this, you get into a stadium where there's, 40,000 people going crazy right as you come on the air and you know that it's the marquee event in the sport. Yeah, there I think there's going to be nerves and I think that's healthy. Like as long as you channel them the right way, I think that that's healthy to feel that and and I love feeling it. I think probably no different than a player feels getting up to a big game where you got one shot in the best game to be at your best and that's part of what makes it special. You recall last World Series
0: as you were preparing for it. What 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 surprised you? What was a little bit different from calling the
1: final series of a baseball season? You know, what was interesting, John was, I mean, I talk about the nerves and the nervous energy and everything. And I think that comes with any broadcast, but what I found was that doing the entire post season for the first time where it used to just be the division series for me, but going division series into championship series, right into world series, while I had like the nervous energy coming on the air that I'm always going to have, it didn't feel too big, I think, because it was just the next big game in a month full of them. With the with the same, I mean, I know the World Series game one in the World Series is a bigger deal than the rest of them, but it didn't need to feel that way. It just felt like the next big game in a month full of them with the same partner and the same crew and the same game on the field. And I think that that was a good thing that that I'm sure I'll feel again this year.
0: We're talking World Series baseball crowds, so they're they're all rabid in their own way but last year like that, that that Philly crowd in the Philly market just it just seems different it
1: feels different
0: do you feel that in the booth
1: yeah i said last year john that in the division series against the Braves that already was the best postseason environment i had felt in the division series in philly so what it got to in the world series I mean, tonight's going to be game seven like you mentioned i'm excited to see that and uh, if they get back to the world series there's no better environment in baseball i mean there's there's no better environment in sports at this point than citizens bank park does that affect how you call a game are you able to block that out yeah i don't know if it affects how i call it it certainly affects how i feel and you know we we ride the the wave of the crowd. Um, so I guess it does affect a little bit the way you call it. Certainly the louder the crowd and the bigger the story the crowd is, the bigger part of it that the crowd is, the more you can lay out, the more you feel comfortable kind of letting the crowd tell the story. Um, but as far as like my actual, you know, the X's and O's of calling the game, probably isn't affected by it. It's more just how you feel when you're doing it. This season, uh, you know, the Baseball Institute at the Pitch
0: Clock, um it brought its uh average length of game down uh considerably and there's much more action on 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 the field how did that change how you call a call a game do you feel that you call it differently right now
1: than you did one year ago i think that there are fewer long stories just because there's not room for them you know in the postseason it's hard to find spots where that makes sense, even without the pitch clock, because the next pitch could always be the one. So you always got to be careful getting going too much, too deep on a guy's story. But now that next pitch that could be the one is always just around the corner. So you really got to be careful and you really got to be tight with those stories. And it's changed a little bit the way that I've prepped this year, you know, doing Dodger games throughout the year. I found myself spending all this time gathering these deep life stories on these guys. And then I'd get through a series with the team and be like, well, shoot, I didn't even get to <laughs> use any of that. Cause there wasn't time between pitches. And um, you know, I, I, think that it's a, it's a sacrifice that everybody's happy to, to in, in my chair is happy to have to make and to, you know, to get what we get from the pitch clock and from the new rules, as you mentioned, the crisper action, you know, it, it's, it's edgier seat stuff and, uh, a few, uh, a few fewer long stories. I think is okay for everybody. Did you get caught
0: this season in a longer story, and 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 had the uh the the, the play catch up to you?
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know where? Well, one of the amazing things about Vin Scully was that it was like the game would tailor itself around whatever he was doing that never happens to me i swear anytime he would start a story this the (laughs) inning would let him finish the story when i start one it's like here comes a double play ball i don't know if that's vin up there in in heaven winking at me like sorry kid you know you're gonna have to earn it before the game plays around your call you did a local tv for the dodgers
0: you did the first series uh of the american league division uh, uh series in baltimore Two 100 win teams that yeah. got swept out. You talked about the the Braves earlier. If you look at this
1: moving forward, are there changes that should be made to to the playoff format? I think that the teams coming out of the wild card series, the fact that they all won in sweeps skewed it because they didn't ha- they didn't have penalties for their starting pitching. They were able to be in a much more comfortable spot than they should be. So whatever you can do schedule-wise to, I don't know, to make that a little tighter, where if they do go three games, maybe they got to get in in the middle of the night and play the next day. I think that's one thing you can look at. Bottom line though, John, I think that baseball is a game where on any weekend in the summer, any team can beat any team. And you get into a five-game series It doesn't matter if you won 130, you can lose in a five-game series to a team that won 90. I think that if I was going to make one significant change, it would be to, and this isn't looking at the schedule and seeing how this would work, but it would be to make the Division Series seven games as well. Because, of course, the more games you play, the better chance that it's going to shake out with the better team winning. Yeah,
0: but as we know, baseball hates ending the season and ending the series in November. So does that mean... Does that mean a, a 154 game regular season? Does that mean ending
1: mid-November where you maybe you're going right. to have some cold snaps? Yeah, I don't know. It could mean, I mean, I think that a lot of people agree 154 games would be a good move. I don't know if it's ever going to happen for money reasons. You know, every every game that you don't have is a large paycheck out of team's pockets when they're not opening up the gate. So I understand that. Uh, I don't know if it could be made back through postseason money or what, but um yeah, I just think from a competitive standpoint, there are some things you can do. And I think if we get another year of this where you get the the big dogs knocked out like they were so consistently this year, then you're going to have to start considering some changes. One of the stories that I think is is really unique
0: uh, about your rise to uh, at Fox is, I recall, I think it was like a decade ago, and uh, Dick Ebersol was still at, at NBC, probably 15 years ago. And I was asking him what sort of what stories I should be uh, taking a look at. And he just talked about the age of the play-by-play announcers and how they were getting old and he didn't have a bench to really replace anybody yet. And his complaint was that uh, people in college or people that were growing up in the business wanted to be sports center anchors and and didn't really want to be play-by-play announcers. But now you're part of this really... uh, I'm considering the mid 30s, young, but uh, you're you're part of this wave of like really young people that he didn't mm-hmm. sort of foresee ha- c- coming into the fold. Talk a little bit about when you um when you got started in the business. You you didn't want to go that sports center route. You always wanted to be a play by play announcer.
1: Yeah, as long as I've as long as you start talking about I want to be this or that when I grow up, I knew I wanted to do exactly this, and I couldn't tell you exactly why that is, but. I just remember from an early age paying close attention to the guys calling the games and something about trying to capture the big moments. I've always kind of been a crowd junkie, you know, an environment junkie. And the way that the announcers got to channel that and play into that a little bit, it was just something that I always looked at and said, how cool would it be to be the guy in the biggest games, getting to be you know, in those biggest crowds, calling those moments. And um, I never really did look at, you know, I, I have done a little bit of studio stuff and, and, you know, local TV and things like that filling in along my path where I was doing play by play jobs. And I just don't like the studio because it's the opposite from being in the in the cauldron of 40,000 fans. You're in a sterile environment where it's dead quiet. And uh, it's just it's just not the same for me.
0: Sounds like your wife would rather have you in the studio, Joe
1: yeah you may be right. You just sit <laughs> quietly. don't give her any ideas <laughs> so uh, uh give me your origins right how did How did you get started in the biz? um it goes back to knowing that it's what I wanted to do. I played Division three college football, and the recruiting pitch from the place where I decided to go was that I could announce the basketball games right away. so that was my first real chance and I went to Beloit College and did everything I could there. wasn't a broadcasting school at all. In fact, my freshman orientation. Uh, leader was a physics professor, and when we sat down and had our first meeting, and I told him what I wanted to do, he said, "Hmm." And he had this top hat on. He's a world class trumpet player. He said, "I have no idea what that is." And I'm thinking, "What have I done i I've actually gone to a place where nobody knows what a play by play announcer is." And it was that kind of place where it was not a broadcasting school, but what it was was it was a place where anything you wanted to do, you could find people that would help you create those opportunities. So I want to be in the perfect place at Beloit where I, I created radio shows and, you know, local TV shows and got all the games on the air. And, and that kind of launched me into getting jobs faster than I probably had any business getting right out of college and and put me on a track that I've been so lucky to be on. Was he wearing a top hat at the time? In the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> top hat. Uh, I'm just trying to paint the picture for you. how, Far away from like, you know, sports jock, uh, sports announcer guy that, that this could be. um, He went up being a good guy, but he still, I don't think, knows anything about play by play announcers. Look, you're
0: doing the World Series. You do uh, the NFL uh, for Fox. You did basketball as well. Is this something that you want to continue doing, like just a multitude of sports as you move forward with your career?
1: Yeah, I think I'm at a place now where it's pretty much just football and baseball and and that leaves the winter for family time which is important i think you know i i admire the guys that do every single day all year you know the kenny alberts of the world who seem like every every day are having a game in a different sport i think that's awesome but for me i think it's important to be good the rest of the time the stuff i am doing to have that time to reload the tank and to get some balance and to be able to step away from it all so Man, if I could keep doing exactly what I'm doing right now for as long as I as long as I want, I'd be a, a very happy man, John.
0: Yeah, that leads me to my uh, next question, which uh, another thing that that I find to be fascinating is that you had this opening and this opening came up because Joe Buck, who I, th- I think is relatively young, too, he's, uh, you know, mid 50s, just sort of grew tired of it. He just kind of wanted to to sort of step away is that something that you, like, that's still a while away. You're on your second series, I know. But is that something that you consider or that, that you're, you are you want to take steps to make sure it doesn't necessarily happen? It's a good question.
1: I always thought with Joe, because Joe for years had been saying to me, like, hey, I'm not going to do this that long. And, you know, and you're the You guy. never
0: believed him, did you?
1: Right. How could you? Yeah. And I've said to him, like, you know, how how could you think that anybody would step away from it? I don't know. Um, hard to say. You know, who knows what life's going to look like in in five, ten, fifty years. However, like who I, I don't know. You know, I, I at this point I'm just trying to do as good a job at it as I can. So they ask me back next year. Like I'm I'm still trying to prove myself that I deserve this crazy opportunity that they've given me. So I'm so far leaning in that direction. I I definitely haven't thought about if I'm going to get to a point where I've had enough. What's more difficult is it replacing Vin or replacing Buck. Uh Joe would, I'm sure, kick my tail if I said replacing Joe. And <laughs> that, that replacing Vin, you know, the greatest ever to do it in sixty-seven years of being the Dodgers announcer. That's probably uh probably the taller hill to climb. I mean I think Joe is the is the greatest guy of this generation and and he's my favorite guy growing up and everything. So that's not taking anything from Joe and, and he knows that. But Vin's you know a a legend and 67 years doing the job. But with both those John, it was I didn't look at it as replacing them because I think it's it would be tough and impossible to replace either one of those guys. Vin for 67 years the greatest ever to do it. Joe the voice of this sport for I mean a, a quarter century at this point like as long as I can remember watching games that's going to make Joe feel I hope he listens <laughs> as long as I can remember listening to World Series games it's his voice you can't replace guys like that because if you if you go in there thinking okay I'm going to replace them I think that the tendency is going to be to try to be them and try to copy things that made them them and you can take things from them and you'd be stupid not to not to learn from them but to get caught up in trying to replace them I've just I've tried to avoid that I know you're taking this month and you're mainly and you're
0: focused on on baseball how difficult is it though when you're doing baseball then you have to do football a couple of uh, days later does that does that um do you have to prepare
1: differently because of that Yeah, it's not hard, the act of calling one game and then calling the other. It's more just like a a workload thing. September becomes the busiest for me when I've got, we have some Thursday Fox Major League games. So I've got a lot of times Dodgers Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Fox Baseball Thursday, Fly to Football Friday, meetings Friday, Saturday, NFL game Sunday. Bouncing from one thing to the other in the act of calling the game is not an issue, but just finding time to make sure you're fully prepared. Whereas you know, when in a normal strep, you're full stretch, you're fully devoted to getting ready for your NFL game, or you're fully devoted to getting ready like I am now for the World Series. So when you got the three of them that stacks up at the same time, it definitely creates a little challenge when you're budgeting out the calendar.
0: But I know for the uh, American League uh, Championship Series, you were uh, bouncing in between Dallas and Houston. Yeah. But you you endeared yourself to my heart when you uh, explained to Smoltz that. It, what what
1: is a Texas chop? What what was that? The Texas chop? I don't even remember that.
0: Oh uh, yeah, it was a Baltimore. Oh, the oh, the chop. Baltimore yeah.
1: chop thing. Yeah 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 yeah. I don't know, I mean, like, John. How many how many baseball games you've been to in your life? I guarantee you've talked about the Baltimore chop at least five hundred times. <laughs> the Texas chop. I'm pretty sure if you go down to the barbecue restaurant on uh, on level six, you can find a a Texas chop. <laughs> that hit is not a
0: Texas I mean, Smoltzman knows more baseball than I know for certain. Me he's too. forgotten more baseball than I know, but come on, man. Yeah. Geez. <laughs> hey, uh, Joe, thank you very much. As, uh, sorry, Marchand wasn't here uh, to to, uh, to pepper you with some, some questions,
1: but I appreciate you coming on as the uh, the big get uh, going into the world of series. Of course, John, anytime. Tell Andrew I'm bummed that he's not on here and, and next time you better be. It was a much
0: nicer uh, uh, conversation. No, no, no tough questions. Uh,
1: yeah. It, it was pretty easy.
0: <laughs> hey, don't say that, man. Hey, thank you very much, Joe. Okay, John. Well, our thank you to Joe Davis, who was kind enough to uh, join join us a day after calling game seven and a couple days before he starts the world series. Uh, Andrew Marshand he is right now touring the Northern United States. I got a text from him from a Minnesota wild hockey game and a Minnesota Vikings football game. So it's, uh, he's uh, having some fun. He'll be back next week. Uh, as always, please like and subscribe uh, to this. Um, uh, leave a comment if you can. want to give a couple thanks to Chris Mason, the master of the board, uh, responsible for all the drops that come in. Uh, AC Wyatt, of course, is the, uh, the person that puts this all together as well. Um, please, again, like, subscribe, and we will see you next week. In terms of uh, the issues that you deal with, where does where does local rights fall into
2: that? I'm sorry, we. I'm not sure I follow. What? Yeah, that
0: was a, that was a terrible question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> My apologies.